I know you've seen them online. I know you've heard about all the scandals involved within this movement. I know that you have seen other Christians criticizing the preachers of this movement. And that particular movement that I'm talking about is the prosperity gospel, or what some will call it the word of faith movement. And that's what I want to talk about today. I want to go into what exactly is this thing? Why is it grasping so many people? Why is it becoming so popular? And why does it just feel a little off? My name is Austin Wright, and welcome to the Upon the Rock podcast. The prosperity gospel used to grasp my heart quite firmly. It, it was a set of beliefs that I held so strongly that I thought I would have it for the rest of my life. This infant belief system, which at best is only 120 years old, seeing how it has its origins stemming from the new thought movement of the 19th century, it has begun seeping into multiple Christian and quasi-Christian denominations and taking hearts by storm. You'll find it in Baptist, Mormon, Pentecostals, self-proclaimed non-denominational churches, or usually most, but not all, most churches that have a charismatic aspect to it. On the surface, its appeal is understandable from human perspectives, but is it biblical? So when I left this line of thinking behind, known by the adherents as the Word of Faith movement, I would have friends ask me, how my old beliefs made sense of certain passages of the Bible. For instance, Matthew chapter 19, verse 21 through 23, with the young rich man who was who was sent away. There was one main verse that we would use to refute attacks from quote-unquote anti-prosperity individuals who try to speak against the pursuit of acquiring riches. And that was, but with God, all things are possible. Which is from the same chapter of Matthew, uh, verse uh, 26. Most of the teachings on prosperity play an obscure balancing act upon this one verse. It definitely is a beautiful and true verse. However, it is dangerous to base your whole life's decision-making upon it. What do I mean by that? So, yes, we should trust in the Lord with all of our might, but that does not mean to pursue moral gray areas by your life and testing the boundaries of God's mercy. So to better understand what all I'm meaning when I'm referring to the prosperity gospel and everything like that, I think it'll be important to lay out the basics when it comes to the Word of Faith movement. And that would be between these three connecting points. So the first point is that there are laws which govern the spiritual world which God cannot violate. Uh, for instance, the law of sowing reaping, which they'll reference Malachi chapter 3, verse 10 through 11. The second point, which is faith and fear are two opposing forces, and everything created was created by God using words of faith, and that our words are to operate in the same faith that God created the universe. And point three is that Jesus died on the cross not only for our salvation, but to bestow dominion back to us over the earth so that we can have power over it by faith, and they'll refer to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11, verse 23 through 24. So, it sounds powerful, right? And could seem rather appealing, uh, especially for those who are struggling in life. Um, but it does not accurately take into account Christ's life and teachings. 
It also has a very negative effect on those who adhere to these beliefs to a T with their relationship with our Lord and Savior. It also makes certain questions difficult to answer, such as what do you make of suffering and what do you make of challenges and unanswered prayers? So what is the history of this movement? So the Word of Faith movement has its origins within the Eastern spiritual philosophy of New Thought, which was made popular in America by Phineas Quimby, among some others. Quimby was a mesmerist and a quote-unquote healer who believed that illness and afflictions originated within the psyche due to, a, to erroneous beliefs, and that a mind open to truth could overcome any illness. He would use hypnotism to convince his patients that their afflictions were mentally based in order to quote-unquote heal them. Quimby would even go on tour to showcase his teaching and would use mentally susceptible individuals to do so. He described his premise as such, The trouble is in the mind, for the body is only the house for the mind to dwell in. Therefore, if your mind has been deceived by some invisible enemy into a belief, you have put it into the form of a disease with or without your knowledge. By my theory of truth, I come in contact with your enemy and restore you to health and happiness. This I do partly mentally and partly by talking till I correct the wrong impression and establish the truth, and the truth is the cure. And I got that from the Quimby Manuscripts, uh, page 183. So these beliefs that stemmed from Quimby, along with the quote-unquote higher life and faith cure religious movements, had a profound impact on a, on a certain E.W. Kenyon, who was a Baptist preacher of the late 19th century. Kenyon went on to believe that his discoveries that he made of new thought, if one were to baptize, quote-unquote, this philosophy by coupling it with the blood of Christ, that this was the new revelation of faith. So Kenyon found his ministry as a Baptist preacher within this novel hybrid of Eastern science with Western Protestant Christianity, and thus the ground for contemporary prosperity teachings were broken. A little bit further in, Kenneth Hagin, a non-denominational preacher in the 20th century, then took Kenyon's works and carried them on. Hagen in the past has been criticized of practically plagiarizing Kenyon's writings and sermons, but it is Hagen who is considered now, writ large, the pioneer and father of the Word of Faith movement in America, inspiring the likes of Kenneth Copeland and others who continue in the same theological vein. It gave rise to tele televangelism, megachurches, and the capturing of hearts across America. To this day, you will hear sermons which preach that sickness, afflictions, and financial obstacles are spiritual and mental in nature, that the only words that Christians should speak are words of faith and not of fear. For instance, instead of saying, I feel sick, they would teach you to say, the devil is trying to afflict me and derail me with the sickness, but I confess I am healed in Jesus' name. Those are some of the things that we were taught you know, to say. That the way that we worded things were so ultra-important. The new thought philosophies can have detrimental effects on those who follow it, as with the case of Mariah Walton, whose Mormon parents who followed the Word of Faith teachings from Mormon perspective refused to have her treated for her pulmonary hypertension as an infant or even as a young child, the two times when it could have been reversed. Their beliefs grounded within the school of thought have now caused severe and irreversible health effects within their daughter Mariah. Lisa Cooper, a convert from, from Word of Faith to Catholicism, 
tells her story in an interview with Psych Hellet from Catholic Answers from her time going up in the movement of families who had children die because they refused to seek medical attention for their children. They did this thinking that such an act would be giving into fear and thus could be contrary to having faith in God. But even so, the Eastern New Thought, which now is merely New Age philosophy, but with a name to God, took hold in Western Christianity and has given rise to a destructive view of Christ and his gospel. There's a particular quote that I wanted to share with you, which in the past, whenever I was within the Word of Faith movement, it didn't bother me at all. But since converting to Catholicism, it troubles me a lot. So here's the quote. God has no choice but to make our prayers come to pass. So this quote comes from a prominent Word of Faith preacher whose name is Creflo Dollar, one who I used to listen to, actually. It's a foolish thing to think that we can dictate the will of God, that God, the unmoved mover, has no freedom and that he is bound to our every whim. Prosperity theology is centered around this notion of ROIs on tithes and prayer and devoid of the phrase, God's will be done. That's not a phrase that you'll find within prosperity gospel. They all take upon this idea that we can dictate the actions of God. It is not uncommon for it to be taught that if afflictions and obstacles are arising within your life, that it is a telltale sign that the individual is not tithing enough and that they must reflect in their spiritual life to see if they're giving and having faith in the Lord. I myself was even told by someone that they believed that they never had much bad happen to them due to their constant tithes and offerings. This belief system ends up leading to a lack of humility, which is what a Christian life should include. We should be submissive with our wills to that of the divine will. And in all things, we should have the disposition in our hearts to say, your will be done, not mine. This new age pseudo theology causes a transactional relationship between God and man. If I give, then God has to give back, multiplied. Charity is not done for charity's sake, but only for the expectation of receiving back. It is a selfish charity. Therefore, it's not charity at all. And it demeans the receiver of the charity, meaning money or goods is given to a person or entity that is in need, but only under the pretense that more than what was offered will be returned to the one that gave. The one receiving charity is made lesser in the eyes of the giver, and made up in the giver's mind as only a means to a material end. There is no love, but a self-love in this transaction. And then a demand of sorts is made to God that he uphold his end of the deal to multiply whatever was given. There is major emphasis in this line of teaching as well on speaking things into existence and that what you say can and will come to pass through faith as a sort of requesting from God was quote unquote owed and partaking our position of dominion over nature. As the likes of Bruce Wilkinson explains, you do not have you do not have because you do not ask, says James. Even though there is no limit to God's goodness, if you didn't ask him for a blessing yesterday, you didn't get all that you were supposed to have. And this comes from his uh, book, Breaking Through to the Blessed Life. We should refuse, however, to believe that there is suffering in the world simply because people did not plead with God for a miracle or blessing or for not, quote-unquote, claiming what is theirs. Wilkinson also conveniently leaves out the next verse from St. James' epistle while making his point. So let us look at this passage from St. James from just a slightly broader view, and you'll see how Wilkinson's argument falls flat. 
So this is from St. James Epistle, chapter 4, verse 1 through 4. And it says, What causes wars and what causes fighting among you? Is it not your passions that are at war in your members? You desire and do not have, so you kill. And you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Unfaithful creatures, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So, God does not always, nor does he have to, show his favor by material blessings. And abundance does not always mean mammon. I also want to make clear before continuing onwards that I am not arguing that those who have money and have it in abundance are sinning. By no means. This has never been a church teaching that those who are rich are inherently sinful or condemned. God may bless by any means that he sees fit. I merely am refuting the teachings of this movement as being non-biblical and showcasing its destructive nature that has been twisting the gospel of the Lord and how it can poison our perception of Christ and hinder a true relationship with him. The majority of those who were wealthy in the Lord's time would have obtained their riches usually by extorting or manipulating the lowly through unjust taxation or lending that was predatory nature or some other sinful means. In modern times, however, it is much easier for believers to acquire wealth of sorts through honest means, but they must still guard themselves against the sin of greed or avarice, as does everyone of all economic backgrounds. The love of money is not a sin privy only to the rich. But when prosperity preachers teach that God blesses his faithful with money and physical prosperity and keeps them from ailments and afflictions, they reinstate the perceptions of Jews in Lord's time who believed that wealth and physical blessings signified a person's favor or lack thereof in the eyes of God. Jesus outright rejects this line of thinking by, say, by saying, God sends rain on the just and on the unjust in Matthew chapter 5, and that God has a heart for the poor in Psalm 34. And Christians have an obligation to help the poor, as he points, as he teaches in Luke chapter 14 and, and 1 John chapter 3. James even says in his epistle, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? So to paint poverty or afflictions as a sign of a person's lack of faith, lack of actions, or a lack of proper communion with God is dastardly atrocious. It begins to foster despair within a believer who is undergoing trials, who will think themselves as lacking faith and being unworthy of God's blessings and love due to their perceived inadequacies. So this is not to say that individuals are not held accountable for their own economic or health situations in certain circumstances, such as the individual who drove themselves into crippling debt. God does allow repercussions for actions most definitely, but not all circumstances a person finds themselves in are entirely by their own personal design, such as being diagnosed with a terminal form of cancer. Trent Horn, a staff apologist for Catholic Answers, in a podcast interview said, we could compare the New Age movement, the New Age view of Jesus, to another false view of Jesus, which would be the prosperity gospel or the health and wellness gospel. The idea that if you pray hard enough and have enough faith, you'll never be poor, you'll never be sick. Actually, the health and wealth gospel, the prosperity gospel, relies on some of the same mind over matter techniques that we found in New Age philosophy. They get the relationship between us and Jesus backwards. Jesus is someone who serves us rather than we are someone who serves Christ. That's how they get it backwards. I would agree that the fundamental flaw 
of the Word of Faith Gospel is getting Christ and his life wrong and how a relationship with our Lord is supposed to look like. What are we to make of these prosperity teachings in light of Jesus' own life of humility and living without wealth? We know that Christ was without sin and God was pleased with him. So why did God not bless Jesus with abundance and wealth and prosperity? Now, there is an argument made by some of these preachers that Christ indeed was rich, and they reference the fact that the Roman soldiers cast lots for Jesus' clothes. However, the fact that lots were being cast for ownership of Jesus' clothes doesn't mean he was wealthy. Any clothing would have had value, even if a little in those days. This belief also does not hold water because if Christ was indeed wealthy, he would not have been given a death amongst the lower class. It's a weak argument for sure, especially in light of scripture saying Jesus became poor in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 9, taking the form of a slave, Philippians chapter 2 verse 7, and had no one rest his head, the Gospel of Luke chapter 9 verse 58. We should also look to the apostles, Christ's most faithful followers and friends who all preached his gospel with their lives, who were suffering persecutions, stonings, life-threatening obstacles, and even a martyr's death for a majority of them. Where is their wealth and abundance? It is these apostles' words which prosperity ministers use to support their own ideologies. Yet scripture and history shows the absolute opposite of worldly abundance occurring for them and the majority of saints. St. Paul himself says, Now you have observed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions, my sufferings, what befell me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. That's the second letter to Timothy, chapter 3, verse 10 through 12. And he also says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For while we live, we are always being given up to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8-12. through St. Paul seems to be directly countering the claims of prosperity teachers. Christ our Lord tells us to deny ourselves and to pick up our cross and to follow him, in Matthew 16, verse 24. Pope Peter addresses the persecution and suffering winning Christians within the world in 1 Peter chapter um, 4 and chapter 5. And St. James echoes Paul and Peter and tells us to count it all joy when we do suffer trials and tribulations in James chapter 1. To count it all joy to suffer seems directly opposite to the teachings of the Word of Faith movement. Could our Lord and his apostles by the words and by their lives be any more clear and their opposition to any of these modern whims of this infant belief system, those who adhere to word of faith can end up spiritually damaged and turn off their Christianity as a whole after trials and tribulations wear them down in light of these beliefs. So we should definitely pray for them and receive them with love and tenderness because this belief system ruins a lot of people. To say that it left me with great spiritual obstacles that took great effort to overcome would be an understatement. I still have certain things within my psyche that I'm still trying to get over. I'm still weary of how I say things and what I say about negativity or negative effects within my life. 
I, I'm still weary about that. Not in a from a virtuous perspective, but from fear, because I was conditioned for so long on how to speak and how to talk, and it still affects me, and I'm still having to get over it. By the grace of God, I have been able to come to love and view God as he wished to be viewed and loved, and I am eternally grateful for the restoration, and I'm eternally grateful that he brought me back into the Catholic Church. However, because of this belief system and its three main foundational points that we that we laid out at the beginning of the episode, these three things, when carried to the extreme, just like how we talked about with that one young woman who was, for the rest of her life, afflicted by um, those physical afflictions because her parents didn't take care of her because of, the, of their belief systems, and how Lisa Cooper talked about how she saw children die. These, this belief system, it's not Christian. It's not based within the Bible. It's not loving. It makes a mockery of God and his relationship with us. It makes a mockery of Christ's gospel and his ministry. And it should be rejected. The belief itself should be rejected. But those who preach it, and those who believe it should be prayed for. And again, we should receive them with all love and tenderness in the ways that I myself was received with love and care after my five years I spent with this, within this belief system. So count it all joy that we do have our trials and tribulations and count it all joy that we are within the church that Christ established upon the rock. And when we do encounter these individuals in our day-to-day lives or online, let's handle them with grace because they have been sold a false Christ and a false gospel. And we need to love them and we need to carefully bring them into the light. It's very cultic and their mentalities are going to be very hard to shed. But with patience, lots of prayer, penance offered for them, and ultimately by the grace of God, they can also be restored and they can come into the truth and the fullness of the gospel. And so with that, Thank you for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode. If you like this episode or this podcast in general, please share it on social media and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to support Upon the Rock, please consider following us on Patreon. Also, don't forget to go to upontherockblog.com to keep up on all the content we have to offer with much more on the way. Upon the Rock would like to thank all of our supporters and we ask you to continue to pray for us. Thank you.